Welcome to the Code Newbie Podcast. We talk to people on their coding journey in hopes of helping you on yours. I'm your host, Saran, and today we're talking about what it looks like to be an AR VR engineer with Luca Mephisto, software engineer at Meta Reality Labs. It will be a big mistake for hospitals, for example, not to have it because it's like this is just cheap and powerful and it just works. I think that's the ultimate power of VR. Luca talks about being drawn to augmented reality and virtual reality early on, the main tools you need to know in order to be an effective AR or VR engineer, and some of the most interesting things he thinks people are currently doing with AR and VR after this. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Luca, you've been building things in the augmented reality and the virtual reality space for many years, and now you are an AR VR engineer at Meta Reality Labs, formerly known as Oculus, which is one of the biggest, most major VR headsets on the market. Tell us about how your coding journey first began. I've been doing AR for around 10 years now, also VRs, as soon as it started. And I think as soon as I finished my studies, in Spain, I realized interaction was the type of thing I liked, like mm. how humans interact with computers. That really clicked with me. At the time, AR was just barely starting. The new VR, let's call it, was non-existent. But I started to make my little experiments, etc. Mm-hmm. My first job, I was like, oh, I want to do this. I want to do some augmented reality and I want to do interactive stuff. So being in Spain, you know, it's a small country. It doesn't have a big industry for interactive stuff. So I moved to the UK instantly and got a job doing augmented reality applications, a bit of augmented reality and a bit of everything. But after a few years, we have this big moment in VR in 2013 when Palmer Lucky introduced the Oculus Development Kit 1. And it blew everyone's minds of many, many developers like me who were there in 2013 when we tried this prototype first virtual reality headset. Mm-hmm. You didn't have any positional tracking. The screen was really low resolution. It makes you sick sometimes if you use it a lot. But for many of us, it was like the moment of, okay, this is what I want to do. I think this is going to be a big industry. I think this is the moment I've been waiting for ages because I want to do interactive stuff. Mm-hmm. And augmented reality was falling a bit short mm-hmm. in 2013. Mm-hmm. So I put all my eggs in that basket pretty much. We started doing virtual reality in the company I was working on. Hidden Creative in Manchester. But in 2015, I was not full-time working in VR, so I decided to quit. Hmm. Start my own journey. Start building my own projects, building games, building experiences for clients. Every time getting bigger clients, many different industries were trying to jump into VR, you know, and they were looking for people like me. So I've been growing and growing and growing, trying a bit of everything of all the different industries, how to apply VR to them. And now I'm here building Interaction SDK at Meta, so it's a dream. (laughs) Take me back to 2013. As someone who has been looking for and been interested in interaction aspects of development for a while, as someone who's done AR and VR before, Palmer Lucky introduced the Oculus SDK, why was that moment in 2013 so important? What was the big deal, you know, for someone like you who knew what it was like before and is now working after? What was that moment like? Why was it so important? I think the moment was 
very important for us, more in a psychological aspect than a technical one. Because for example, when some colleagues try it, they thought it was shit, mm-hmm. to be honest. Oof, make me really sick. This resolution is terrible. But some other engineers were like, wow, I just put this in and I really feel I am inside of this. Like it was more this feeling of instant immersion, mm. even though, you know, to see past all the problems that it had, just to stay there, stay calm, put a headset on and try to feel the moment. I was like, wow, I never feel this with technology ever. Like this, mm. this feeling of, yeah, of presence, of immersion. So that was the big moment I think many people, many of us had. And some others didn't. It makes sense because, you know, the technology was not quite there at the time. Mm. Some people was comparing it to the 3D screens, 3D TVs and stuff right, like right, that. Yeah. But some of us, we understood it's not a new format right. to enjoy the same content. You know, it's not a 3D, 3D. It's not a cinema screen. It's a new medium where the rules we have learned about maybe theater or video games or cinema cannot really be applied in here. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be a gimmick or a toy. It's going to be something that redefines everything else around it. And some of us, I think we saw that quickly mm-hmm. and decided to just risk everything pretty much because we could be unemployed right now, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so before the Oculus SDK came out in 2013, what was it like to build in VR? When you think about your tool set, you know, the headsets that were available, the you know, just what it felt like to be an engineer trying to build out these experiences before the Oculus came out. Because the thing that's interesting about VR is, like you said, it feels new, but it's actually been around for a while. It just yeah, yeah. looked different, right? It, it, it kind of felt and looked different and has evolved. But the, the promise of VR and the idea of VR has been around for a long time. I think at that point, VR was pretty much completely dead. No one was asking for it. Mm. There was no demand for it. At that time, augmented reality was all the rage. I think much more than it is right now. Like 2010, 2012, all the companies were asking for augmented reality stuff, even though at that time it was just fun. But VR was really proper dead. Like we tested this in the 90s. It didn't work. Mm-hmm. Why will we ever try it again? We know it's terrible. We know it doesn't work. So no one really was asking for VR. But as someone interested in interaction, you had some things like, for example, the Nintendo Wii with the Wii motion controllers mm-hmm. or, you know, some contraptions to use video game consoles and stuff like that in a more human way. So that's what we usually do. Like, I mean, maybe, I don't know, play a game with the Wii mode, but in a PC. So you have to do the gestures, maybe put some voice recognition in other games so you can play with them in a more immersive way. But we didn't have any way to put, you know, the screen in the head. It was too expensive, Mm. too bad, to be honest. So after Oculus came around and you got re-excited about VR and kind of the potential of it, what was the potential that you saw for VR? I think for most people, it reminds people of gamers, right? And this idea of kind of having like fun experiences in a virtual space. But I think for a lot of people who aren't as familiar, it does still feel kind of gimmicky. As someone who is, you know, really into the space, what was it that you were hoping to build with VR with this new technology? What kinds of things did you see yourself creating for the world? So at that time in the company I was working with, we were doing a lot of training for people working maybe in big energy industries. Mm. You know, like maybe you have to build these offshore wind turbine 
and we will have to take you in a helicopter to the middle of the sea so you can climb the wind turbine and fix it. Mm -hmm. And we quickly understood that VR is never going to replace, well, I think not anytime soon, it's not going to replace going there to fix it yourself. Mm. But many of these people were like, oh, you read these 200 pages manual, we put a test, then we will have to take you 10 times to the wind turbine so you can learn how to fix it. And we understood that if they do it through VR, things get memorized much better. Things get automated better in the brain. Like if it's done well, and that doesn't mean realistically looking, but you know, but understanding the problems with the technology or how the human brain works. If you do it in an intuitive way, you can take that person to that wind offshore turbine a hundred times, mm. and then you can go there by helicopter just once and they will know what to do. This is one of the first things we saw like, oh, this makes a lot of sense mm. to use in training. Much later in my life, I discovered the power of healing through virtual reality. Mm. I work with an NGO here in Granada, and we use it to rehabilitate patients who suffer a stroke. Interesting. It's so realistic to them. And this is where I put pretty much all my work into making interactions be really intuitive, you know, so they don't have to think about how to work with it, how to press the buttons or grab an object. They just do their exercises, you know, around a table, in a house, not in 3D, but exercises they could very well do with the doctor. But now they can do it in VR. We can measure way more things like the speed of the hand, how mm. long it took them to look at this object. Um, we can automate, randomize it, automate it thousands of times. So it's exactly the same exercises they do. But now in the same one doctor who see one patient, he can see 20 now and they can take it home and do exactly the same. And not just us, but anyone else working in these sort of projects, we have discovered that it works really well to a point where we believe that as soon as we finalize or our studies as an industry on health, mm -hmm. It will be a big mistake for hospitals, for example, not to have it because it's like, this is just cheap and powerful and it just works. I think that's the ultimate power of VR. Are there other industries you've looked at or heard of where VR can really make a specifically a positive impact in terms yeah. of <laughs> in terms of you know helping people and really you know, making a difference in people's lives beyond just kind of you know gaming and entertainment? Yeah, one of the big sales that they are trying to put in VR is the social aspect. Mm. I get this question a lot of, doesn't isolate you too much, you know? Mm. I think it's exactly the opposite of in isolated. It's more like a social experience. When you play a video game, or you just talk like we are talking right now over a podcast, you know, on a microphone, we are having a conversation, but it doesn't feel that social, right? And I'm still doing it alone in my room. If we were doing it through virtual reality, I will feel your present. We could feel our present one next to each other. The social power of VR is one of the four big pillars of VR, of presence. There are some theories of what presence means, but they all agree that the social aspect of human life is one that VR really supports really well. So mm. staying together with people in while being on your house is really powerful. And it's also really powerful, for example, for remote work, where sometimes you are working remote, you never see your team, you know? And sometimes you just have a Zoom call with them and you just see them on the webcam. But having that, even if it's just an avatar that doesn't even look realistic, if they move 
and are portrayed in a believable way for your brain to understand, after 10, 15, 20 minutes, you don't really think that's not a human. Um, that's not a presence you have nearby. And that's really, really powerful. Mm. I think it's a proper good impact. Doesn't mean you shouldn't go out, you know, and meet other people, but just that the time you spend at your house talking with other people, it can be like if you were really there with that people. So let's get a little more technical. What are the main tools that you need to know to be an effective AR and VR developer? What are the frameworks, uh, languages, platforms? What are the, the things you need to know to build the kinds of things that you get to build? For virtual reality, the main go-to solutions are game engines. They are still called game engines, but I don't think they are at all, which is Unreal and Unity. Uh, one uses C++. The other one uses C-Sharp. Probably 80% of the virtual reality applications are built with Unity. So it's uh, definitely a good tool to have in your tool set. If you don't fancy either Unity or Unreal, there are starting to be more and more web virtual reality applications that mm -hmm. run on top of the web. So you have things like 3GS on top of it. There's something called A-Frame that runs with JavaScript, supports virtual reality. They are still lacking some features. Optimization, there are many big optimization problems in virtual reality. It's a problem with web VR. So most of the web VR experiences you see around, you know, feel super compared to the ones built with Unity or Unreal. But mm -hmm. it's definitely there. And I think it's going to keep growing and growing and growing. That's the idea of web VR. So that's for VR. For AR, apart from those, you can use Unity. Probably you can use Unreal as well. But I have barely ever seen augmented reality application built in Unreal. So probably Unity is a more clear winner here. Mm -hmm. But you also have tools from Snapchat that are doesn't necessarily require code. You have tools from Instagram. You also have web AR solution that use JavaScript too. So this is a lot more of different solutions around. So if I want to start with AR and VR, as a developer, as a software engineer, is there any kind of prerequisite that I should know? Like math, for example, is, is getting into math a, a really good idea? Should I be a really good JavaScript developer first? You know what I mean? Like what are kind of the, the prerequisites if there are any before getting into some of the tools that you mentioned? I think at least it's getting easier and easier and easier. Mm -hmm. Tools like Spark AR and the Snapchat one doesn't even require you to know how to code if you want to build something really simple. Mm -hmm. And in Unity, you have a lot of frameworks you can build on top of it. For example, I'm building Interaction SDK, which is for interactions in VR, but you have AR Foundation by Unity to simplify your augmented reality applications creation. So to get started, I think you don't need a lot. To get really good, math is something, it's true that while you are studying, many people say, oh, you should be doing math and math is what you need. And to be a good programmer, you need to be good at math. That's usually not necessarily true. And I know many programmers who are not great at math and they barely ever need it. But I think if you want to do things in 3D space, at least your algebra from where you were 16 year old, that level of algebra, you have to know it by heart. It's not difficult math. The difficult thing is to develop the intuition of that math, you know, of mm, how, because yeah, you're yeah. going to have to solve a lot of very creative problems that happens in a 3D space. If it's not for an interaction, it's just for a graphics problem, you know, like I want to run effects, I want to move around the space. 
mid-level algebra, it's important to start developing that intuition, I think. Other than that, not much, to be honest. And I don't think that's even a requirement to just get started. But I think when people feel like they hit a roadblock past you know, a few months of working and learning, and they want to speed up the development process, it's because they usually lack that. What I find really fascinating about the VR space is it's being invented, created, and then you have to learn it at the same time. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. not like, you know, other other fields, other industries where it's been studied for a while and then kind of, you know, yeah. translated to books and courses. It, it feels like it's kind of all happening at the same time. So how do you handle learning when you're, you know, being introduced to technology, you know, as it's being created and also have to learn it enough to use it? How do you think about your learning process and what works best for you? That is an amazingly <laughs> good question. Because for me, when VR started, it was 2013. I've been working just for one year. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I had a master's degree, but then just been working from 2012. And when I saw it coming, it was like, oh, wow. Suddenly, this is a um, once in a million opportunity because everyone suddenly is put in the same level. You know, I have the same level of experience in VR than this guy who is 40. Mm -hmm. you know, and, I, and I'm 20 something. <laughs> So mm -hmm. I have to use it because, of course, if a new web framework comes out, everyone has to learn it from scratch. But the ones who have a lot of experience already on web frameworks probably can get it quicker. But since this was like a whole new paradigm, it's not just a technical skill on how you code. It's also how you think about solving creative problems, not in the code space, but even in how do you do a video game on this? What language makes sense? Can you make a movie? but you cannot force the user to look in direction. So you have to rethink even the language of theater, etc. So mm -hmm. it really made tabula rasa with everyone. And we all started at the same time. Right. So for me, the way to learn was really meetups, I think. It was very community-driven at the beginning. It's still quite community-driven, I think. There were not many of us who were doing VR at the beginning. So we all got together, knew each other. I started VR Manchester. Everyone who was starting in the industry got together in there and we had once a month, we talk about our discoveries, say what we've learned, stay in contact, you know, over Slack channels and Discord channels with developers all around the world. I attended talks, but also prepared my own talks. It was not talks anyone was an expert in. It was more like, I'm going to learn this so I can give a talk so we can all learn collectively. So that was really the way of learning in virtual reality. Mm. Now I will say it's a mixed bag. Okay. I think it's still very important to attend communities. This is still a lot of innovation happening in this space. Mm. Um, the best way to stay on it is to know who is building what, you know, and checking what they are doing. But also now, for example, Unity, YouTubers, streamers are starting to put out a lot of content mm -hmm. to at True. least get yeah. you started. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to follow these people, get you started. Unity has a lot of free resources and courses on how to start understanding it. Mm. And once you have a good control of it, I think the most important thing right now is to 
download experiences, games, and demos, try everything, be very critical on how they're doing it because it's still a bit of the Wild West and you cannot trust every single game that you are testing or you're playing. It's well done, you know, and it's following mm-hmm. the, the language or the good patterns, etc. So it's play or try demos or theater or whatever. Check the community and at least Unity, Unreal, etc. now have more like kickstart courses. But as soon as you reach a level, just want to talk straight to the people who are building stuff. So when I think about building in VR and AR, and just hearing you kind of talk about it, it feels very similar to, to game development. Where did the two start to diverge? Well, the language as an art, let's say, is not the same in video games that it is on VR necessarily, because there are many things you cannot do anymore in virtual reality that you could do video games, but that's just for, for that language part. On the other sense, it's also an industry. So yeah, you can do games and you can do VR games and that's becoming fairly profitable now. It was not five years ago at all. It was suicide to make a VR video game. But you have to understand now that you can apply VR to pretty much any industry. So all these more these soft skills of understanding you know, your client needs, Understanding that you're making like a product that is going to be deployed to a lot of, I don't know, maybe workers or maybe health people or, or stroke survivors, etc. So understanding that you are not building a game. Even though you're using the tools you will usually build for a game, now you're building more like a professional, professional application. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. One problem we usually see with many game devs, and I'm a game dev myself, is that most games are built in a way like it just works. It just has to work. It's all cheating your way to finish, you know, the video game, just put a plastic on it and send it. But these people now are building products, so they have to think way more about scalability, about refactoring sometimes things, about understanding that software now has to keep growing and following more agile methodologies, etc. So it can grow with the companies, etc. If they are making just a VR game, it's pretty much the same. It's just the language that changes. So let's get into the work that you are doing on Oculus right now. LinkedIn says that you are developing Interaction SDK. What is that all about? Yeah, Interaction SDK is a set of tools for mainly focus on hand tracking, you know, which is the technology to be able to just use your naked hands without controllers in virtual reality. Up to this point, Oculus was just literally offering developers just the values of the hand, basically like, oh yes, I see your hands. Your index finger has the distal joint at these degrees and the proximal joint at these degrees, off you go, right? But if you just have this massive amount of data every frame, what does it mean to grab an object, to poke a button, what does it mean to point at something or to do a gesture, right? Every time, that's what we're trying to solve. Like mm-hmm. We try to give people a library where we say, oh, do you want to do gesture detection to understand that the user is, I don't know, pointing at something, doing a thumbs up sign or doing a T-pose, like asking for break time. That, we are building it for them. If you try to close your hand around a virtual object that doesn't really exist, you know, how do you code it in a way that the hand look like it's realistically grabbing that object and the object becomes attached to the hand because again, your hand exists, the object doesn't, etc. 
that also usually requires a lot of code. So we are solving that as well for users. Even things like how do you move around the world with just your hands? It also works with controllers, but we're trying to put the focus on hand tracking because it's a difficult problem here. Mm. Even just something as simple as pressing a button with your fingertip, right? If the button doesn't exist, how do we make it feel great that you are pressing something? If you don't even have the, you know, the haptics, the vibration on the controller, you have nothing. It's just your naked hand. How do I make you feel the user that that was a physical button that really existed and you feel like you touched it? What is it about hand tracking that makes it such a difficult and interesting problem to solve? Yeah, the main problem right now is for hand tracking, MetaQuest, for example, the headset has four cameras. Uh, from these four cameras, it can tell your position in a room, but also it uses the cameras to detect where your hands are. So it's using machine learning to differentiate your hands from the background, and it returns you what we call a, it's a skeleton, a hand skeleton, with the position on, of each one of the bones of each one of your hands. The problem is, it's all computer vision-based machine learning. So if you move your hands really fast, the algorithm may fail. If you block the vision of one hand with the other hand, you might not know exactly how the hand has the fingers, you know? And if you put your hand behind your head and the cameras are not seeing it, you also don't know what the hand is doing. So it's a lot of data per hand being received every frame that is also really, really noisy because it's all, you know, based on computer vision. On top of that, your hand exists and you can feel your hand, you know, and you know it has a weight and you feel when you're touching things. But in virtual reality, if I draw in front of you a battle that doesn't exist, you won't necessarily feel that you're touching it because, of course, the battle is not there. And if, for example, if I went for the naive implementation is, let's say I take your data and I make the hand in virtual space be like a physical hand that can collide with things. Now you try to put your hand near the battle. What do you need to do for grabbing it? You have to stop your hand on time, because if you push too much, you will push your bottle away mm. and it will fall. So that's already a problem. If you stop too soon and start closing your hand, you will push the bottle again with your fingertips. You have to really stop your hand exactly where the bottle is and carefully close each finger so it grabs the bottle nicely. And that's terrible user experience, isn't it? So mm-hmm. it's such a difficult problem to make you feel like your hand has presence, that your hand is really there, but it can be solved. It can be solved through great design, trying to adapt to what the user intention is, trying to use good sound as well. If you move your hand fast near a battle and close it, you should just grab it, mm. right? So this mm. sort of problems, it would makes very difficult to use hand tracking there are many problems. One that I love that is the most simple one is how people point. Mm-hmm. How do you point at things? Because if I'm giving you the data of your hand, many people will say, oh, it's just the index finger. I'm extending my index finger. You know, I'm pointing at something away. Whenever I ask this question to, to students, most naive implementation they say is just take the direction of the index finger and that's where they're pointing. And mm-hmm. that is incredibly false. One of specific things is if you have any one angle degree error after 20 meters distance, you are meters and meters away. The right way, for example, that, for example, Oculus suggests for pointing is you take the position of the fingertip 
you don't know where your solder is, but you mm -hmm. can estimate where the solder is based on the wrist position, what you will estimate the, the elbow position at, you have the head position, and then you estimate the solder position, and you trace a ray from that solder to your ray and pointing ahead. And that is actually closer to what the user is pointing at and just following the finger. So even such a yeah. simple and something that when you think about it, yeah, this is a trivial problem, becomes a massive problem. It's even trickier because when you're pointing at, you should estimate from the pelvis of the user and not the solder. So it's a, just something so simple like that can make or break an app. Coming up next, Luca talks about the different pros and cons of working in a small company versus working at one of the bigger, well-known commercial companies currently leading the AR and VR space. After this. So you've worked for both big and small companies as well as for yourself in the AR and VR space. What are some of the biggest differences in working in these different capacities in different environments? I think for big companies, especially when I'm working right now, what I'm really liking is they care about having things done right, mm. not necessarily fast, you know, like mm, just focus mm. on finally nailing it, finding the proper solution. Working in smaller companies, especially in VR, this being this sense of urgency, because most of the clients you will have up to this point usually was not very big companies. It was companies that were using VR, I don't know, for a new use case or something where they have to demonstrate that it works really quick. So it's a quite stressful sometimes, you know, that you need to get things done very quickly, but everything is three times more work than doing a normal application. No one knows anything. Even the client itself is figuring out what he needs as you are building it because you know they have never tested everything is so new that they don't even know exactly what VR can do for them. So you are building a prototype at the same time you are building the product and everything is more difficult because no one has done solved many of the problems you will have. So it's a bit stressful, but the good thing is no one has built it before. So there's a massive amount of creativity that you can put into your product mm -hmm. and your project. So you can innovate every single project feels incredibly fresh and new. My last job, when I decided to finally quit, I was making some VR, I was making AR, but I was also making Android, iOS, Windows, Forms, apps. And it got to a point where I feel I'm building the same over and over. You know, I'm making another panel that comes from the left, another hotspot that you need to play. And it felt repetitive. But with VR, you don't have that. With VR, every single project is, especially for a small client, is brand new. I'm very creative. I'm really, really motivating. I really like that. So when I think about VR, it feels like such a big investment, right? The technology is new. There's you know the hardware component, the software component. It feels like if you want to do VR or or AR, and you want to you know really make something productive, you kind of have to be at a big company like Meta or you know Microsoft or you know HTC Vive. Like it feels like you need to yeah. you need to be in that kind of environment to really do this kind of work. And I wanted to know is is that true in in your opinion, having worked for both small companies and big companies? And if you don't work for one of these big entities, what are some of the biggest challenges in building in this space without necessarily the resource or uh, scale of a company like Meta? 
I have to say, I'm very happy working at Meta, but I think I've never been unhappy doing the other side. Okay. I never had a bad year, I'll say, or a terrible year. Just every year has been more and more. Uh, now I'm working at Meta, of course, so I'm, I'm happy about that. But I was happy with all my previous jobs as well. The thing with VR is it affects pretty much all industries. You know, Maybe if you're making games, which is what everyone is doing, you will struggle a bit. But if you understand that the power of virtual reality is that it can be applied to pretty much any industry, you can find a lot of opportunities in anything. Again, I was making VR concerts for some music artists. I'm doing health. I've, I've done big industries. I've, I've done also theater. All of them want to do VR. They are the ones putting the investment and they are looking for solutions. So right now, if you know where to look at, you will find many places. There's actually a big lack of professionals. We are lacking professionals left and right. We need more programmers. We need more designers. We know more 3D artists that understand the space constantly. And I'm not talking about Meta. I'm talking about the whole industry. Mm-hmm. It's too much work <laughs> to do mm-hmm. because everyone, mm-hmm. every single industry wants to see how VR can solve their problems. And the good thing is VR can solve many of their problems. So a few years ago, it was not the case. But now I think it's finally is this sweet spot right now to where finding opportunities, but there's not a lot of competition, you know, so mm-hmm. you can find your spot, I think. And right now I'm, I have the meta thing, but I'm also working with this health solution too. And that one is working really well. And I see pretty much all small companies who are doing stuff like that. They always find their place. What are the biggest challenges when you're building things within one of these huge AR VR companies? I guess the biggest challenge is there are many, many teams working in very different sections and sometimes these sections overlap. So when you want to work on something, first you need to check if another team is working on it, you know? And if they are working on it, you have to start conversations to see if you like your solution more or the solution more. And then you have to have this debate and this discussion to say, oh no, let's do it my way or let's do it your way. So I think the biggest problem, if that's a problem, is you spend a lot of time communicating your ideas and sometimes trying to convince people to go with your idea, or sometimes annoyingly finding that you have worked on something that another three teams have resolved. Oculus is such a big company. I mean, Meta Reality Labs is such a big company as well that, yeah, that sometimes you find uh, a bit of, oh, I was working on this, but this is already solved. But at the same time, is how comes no one solved this problem already? And you have to kind of take responsibility. It's a pro and a con. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everything takes much longer. Everything has to be cross-validated by a group of engineers. But that also, for me, who has been working on my own since 2015, and I was doing well and good and I like it, but I was missing these conversations, you know, with a lot of good engineers about how to do things right. And now I have them every day. That's really cool. Just some days, you just want to code, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the coolest and most interesting things that people are doing in AR and VR today that you've seen? Yeah, maybe within Meta, but also just generally in the space, things that you've seen other people build. This is a big application, very famous. It's called VR Chat. It's just a, like a Wild West social network. VR chat itself is well and good, but the cool thing is I'm seeing, for example, theater groups doing live theater in there. 
because they couldn't go to you know a proper theater with real people they do it now in vr chat and they can make a theater with you and involve you in the story and uh, it's really amazing yeah you know because you can be part of the story they are recreating for you live mm-hmm. i think that's really really cool other stuff i've seen i've been building the concerts and i think that was a very cool space during the lockdown for big artists this is not usually a big problem but the people who work with these big artists they don't have a job you know what's the, the lightning engineer what is he going to do he has to you know go put lights in festivals and there are no festivals and there are no concerts so in vr we have seen now many big artists do their gig but the tools they are provide in vr are tools that can be used by the lighting engineers or the creative team that will build a massive scenario now they will build it in vr and they will have a lighting engineer with the mixing table they use for moving lights adjusting volumes etc they will use that in vr Mm-hmm. So all these people don't won't lose their job. They kind of still work exactly the same way with exactly the same tools. They just don't are not doing a real, real gig. They are just doing it in virtual reality. So I think that's another very cool news. And I guess another cool one. I, I'm really in love with health. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, at the end of every episode, we ask our guests to fill in the blanks of some very important questions. Luca, are you ready to fill in the blanks? Yeah. Number one, worst advice I've ever received is? Leave optimization for the end of the project. Mm, oh, interesting. Tell <laughs> me about that. Yeah, that, that's a pretty common one, I feel like. <laughs> Tell me more about that. It's a yeah. very common one. And I know it makes a lot of sense in other spaces. But in VR, you have to run at, let's say, 90 frames per second. So if you open any normal video game, for example, let's say a 2D car play video game in your phone, mm-hmm. it runs at 24 frames per second. No one cares. So you finish building the game, it runs at 24 frames per second. It's done. Good. Mm-hmm. You don't need to optimize that, you know? In VR, you have the same chip of that phone, but now you are doing 3D with two cameras, so it's twice the power that you need. And you need to run it at 90 frames per second. And if you go to 89, it's a no-go. You cannot release the game. You know, mm-hmm. you can never fail a single frame. So suddenly, if you leave optimization for the end, you will discover that not just you have to refactor code. Sometimes you have to redesign and rethink entire section of your game. Uh, it's so important that games and experiences in general, they run well and they look believable but they never break immersion. And for breaking immersion, meaning, yeah, having some problems. I have seen projects where optimization has been easily 90% of the work because they left it for the end. And even they have to completely change entire things just because it's a very, very hard deadline. Interesting. Number two, best advice I've ever received is? Get involved with the community. Mm. Manchester is a very community-driven city. It's not a big city. I think it's 400,000 inhabitants. But some very cool thing has been built there, like WordPress or the Raspberry Pi. Mm-hmm. Every single day, there will be two or three meetups for Android developers, JavaScript guys, uh, Scala fans. I don't know. I started with going to the Android meetup because I was doing Android app. And it's like, I met people. I learned a lot of very specific things and very obscure things I loved. I ended up giving my own talks uh, that forced me to learn as well. 
And it's also, it makes your life easier to, you know, not just get in the known, but also even land a job later. So it just makes your life easier. And there's no reason not to do it. Number three, my first coding project was about? It was a script. So I could use a Wii Motion with a Wiimote sensor and the Dance Dance Revolution dance mat and voice recognition to play games. I have to walk in the spot, you know, pressing the buttons and even jump or crouch. And I have to hit people with the Wiimote, everything connected to the PC. And even in Skyrim, they have this thing where you can shout spells. So you have to shout to the computer to also to do the spells. And this was my first small project just for myself mm-hmm. that I really loved. Number four, one thing I wish I knew when I first started to code is... That I still have pay way more attention in algebra. when i studied that at uni i was like oof this is not for me it was one of the worst subjects for me i I did poor i didn't care too much about it i don't know i will learn to love it and now every now and then i'm like regretting it and even thinking should i just go back (laughs) to the university just to take this class again just to see if i can (laughs) finally nail it (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah (laughs) well thank you so much again for joining us luca thank you so much it's been a pleasure this show is produced and mixed by levi sharp you can reach out to us on twitter at codenewbies or send me an email hello at codenewbie.org for more info on the podcast check out www.codenewbie.org slash podcast thanks for listening see you next week